Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers when Paul McCartney told Anne and Nick that he couldn't understand why Linda McCartney's vegetarian food brand hadn't gone with his original suggestion for a slogan, Mrs. Mac's Meatless Meals, mmm. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers, that no one else ever seems to, is writer Daryl McLean. Daryl, what are you up to and where can we find it? He also said they should have been £300. <laughs> That's another <laughs> mistake he thinks he made. £300 a box. I'm currently co-writing a book, which I can't say anything else about, but it'll be very exciting. So there's a little exclusive tease that looks unfamiliar. It's not about Paul McCartney or vegetarian sausages. OK, well, I'm fairly sure that it's not going to be about your first choice either. Let's just have a listen to them singing and talk about them later. I didn't know existed, though I knew the band existed. Daryl, who were Crush and what was loved up? In the summer of 1996, there were, you know, at the time there were a lot. Pop music was a big thing. Bubblegum pop music was a big thing. There were lots and lots and lots of music programs on TV, lots of kids' TV music programs. Quite often they would push things that a label would push and a lot of hits were made from them. And there was a band called Crush, half of which was Donna Err, who was at the time a kind of medium-level, kind of C-list celebrity. She'd been in Biker Grove. She was kind of a ladette, was in kind of Loaded and things at the time. And, uh, and she was with someone else who I think was also in, in Biker Grove. They'd been trying to launch this band. I think they tried to launch it on Biker Grove itself. I think that's where it came from, a bit like a female PJ and Duncan. They had made a big push in the summer of 1996 for this single called Loved Up. It's kind of a retro 60s pop song, a bit like the ace of bass one from a few years later that there would actually be a hit and the interesting thing about loved up is it was really really heavily plugged on everything it was really the, the interviews for it promos clips from the video it was a really really big launch and the consensus was this was going to be a really big summer hit and i bought it i bought the cd single of it i deliberately went out for it and i really wanted it because i liked the sound of it and that week wannabe by the spice girls came out as well got to number one. I think Loved Up made it to number 37 or something like that, and it went really wrong. And I remember being really fascinated at the time why it had failed so badly when it seemed to have all the coverage, and the Spice Girls seemed to be on little fringe things like GMTV and odd things, not really... Because really, it's really weird to remember now that the Spice Girls, when they were first launched, were treated by the media as a bit of a joke, Something that they like, they'd seen all these boy bands and girl bands being launched, and it was a joke by this point. And they were kind of, they were over it. They knew it would be another failure from another mogul Svengali idiot, and it took them all by surprise. 
And Crush Love that probably got more hype in the week before than Wannabe did. Do you recall that week at all when the Spice Girls broke through? I do, because it was really like a weird incremental climb. Because as you say, it started the week, they were a bit of a joke. And the Wannabe video was... I think the thing that really broke that was there was a cable channel called The Box where you could phone up and request videos to be played. So you get really weird things like at three in the morning, you get Obsession by Army of Lovers five times in a row because somebody liked it that much and no one else was phoning in. But Wannabe, normally it's just wall-to-wall take that during the day. Wannabe was just on permanently. And I think, I don't think the girl power thing had quite got through at that stage. I think it was men phoning up to watch them again and again possibly the first time i heard that song it was on gmtv just before i went to school and they were singing wannabe quite cheaply miming to it in a car park what the most the, the most kind of low rent early morning tv filler you could possibly get like here's this band who were going to fail here they are in a car park miming to the song That's three minutes done. Kids would do. i'm pretty sure they were in a car park miming to it, it was really kind of unglamorous just get it done in the same way at the time there were so many launches of new groups it was every week whether it was something like live and kick even things like blue peter would always try and launch terrible new pop groups who would disappear immediately and it was just another one of those but loved up was getting all the kind of it was on the chart show loads it was on the chart show you know they, they do this is going to be hot next week this is going to be and i think it might have been on if it wasn't radio one or verge it was something like that one of the radio stations the pot radio stations as well was really pushing it and it died so dramatically and it pretty much killed the entire group i think they made a few i think the album never came out the album was cancelled uh, i had a look into it i think it came out in japan or something like that but the actual the whole campaign was completely bombed away by another song and it's so weird at the time. So in 1996, there was literally only room for one single by women at a time, <laughs> like a rotor system. Well, it's interesting though. I mean, I'll come back in a second to the album, but they had actually been part of a previous attempt to fashion a girl group from Biker Grove. This is completely forgotten, which is a couple of years earlier. The two of them, because obviously, like you say, you had Donna Rare, who was Charlie, cousin of the original Charlie from Biker Grove. That never got confusing. J.D. Hoy, who was Leah, who was originally one of the psychandrics, that religious cult that tried to infiltrate the Grove. But also, they were originally a trio with Vicky Taylor, who was Angel. And they were called Biker Groove, I think, with four O's. And they had a single in 1993 called Love Your Sexy that I think it was like, because it was like a kind of pre-cheeky girl, slightly rude thing about a boy. And I think it was... Airplay was curtailed, maybe. It was an odd... It was, well, they were, try, they were really kind of trying to push the edge because Phil Redmond, isn't it, was kind of trying... You know, publicity stuntman, really. That's his... That's his, that's his superhero. Publicity <laughs> stuntman. <laughs> well, of course, there's that great bit in his autobiography where he complains that the BBC wouldn't use his theme for the Grange Hill that he'd written himself. And do you remember you once suggested the lyrics for it? No, it was Thatcher, Thatcher, bloody bloody Thatcher. They're allowed to get me... Bastards. Speaking of the album, I had to look at it earlier. I actually had to listen to parts of it. It's really weird because it is quite cred more than you'd expect. For a start, a lot of the songs are co-written by Henry Priestman, who is obviously a veteran of a lot of bands like Yachts, It's Immaterial, The Christians, who he's involved with for a long time. So, you know, there was that songwriting credibility. Also, they cover Teenage Kicks, which I was dreading. 
But to be honest with you, they do it better than when, you know, the latest white guitar boy band goes, Here's our tribute to John Peel! And does it exactly the same as the original. They did We Got The Beat, the Go-Go's song, in a sort of fairly identical style, but it's not bad. But they also do Penthouse Girl Basement Boy, which is a solo single by Sarah Cracknell from St. Etienne. Well, I think Sarah Cracknell is involved in that album. I think her, Sarah Cracknell's mum was Crush's manager. So I think that's why she's involved. But yeah, it's it's a strange... Everything was right for them. And also, that summer, just before that single came out, and I think it was timed on purpose, Donna Err was on Shooting Stars, and I think that appearance was specifically connected to the campaign for the Crush single and album. It was part of this big rolling media campaign. This must have spent ages and so much money working it out. Well, obviously, you know, I think what probably did for them was what probably what the label were hoping for, because it was Telstar who also released the Anton Deck or originally PJ and Duncan material. And don't forget, they were originally called Grove Matrix in the storyline on Biker Grove when they started the band. But they obviously thought, you know, we've got one successful post-Biker Grove act, we can have another. And I imagine people just saw it and thought, Oh, it's another post-Biker Grove act. Yeah, we've already got PJ and Duncan doing Shout at that point, so... Well, I was about to say, there's a, there were about three or four attempts at launching PJ and Duncan, and then as Ant and Deck as a pop act, and not, they kept stalling all the time. It only really worked when they went became kids' TV presenters. The music career didn't really take off. Then they released, they released the cover of Stepping Stone. I think that was the first time they were, became Ant and Deck. And then they went all cred with shout. And don't forget there was you crazy cats between the two. <laughs> I'm still amazed that anyone made that record. Because <laughs> it actually appears to be about some crazy cats. <laughs> it's, it's, was it not about, was it about um, rats from uh, Live and Kicking? Is that who it was about? If there was ever the a giant song about CGI. Rats from Live and Kicking, I will find every copy of it and destroy them. <laughs> Right on top of every copy of Wigwam Glam, but that's another story. Okay, well, I'm guessing that Crush would not have been... Well, for a start, it was a couple of years too early, but there would not have been the answer to any of the questions in this clip from your next choice. So, let's just hear it. Can you recognise this voice? When our record, Sultans of Swing, became an international hit single, I hoped I soon might become one of the greatest guitarists in the world. In fact, I am now, but it hasn't stopped me going bald. Who am I? Um, Simon? Mark Knopfler! No, I'm afraid not. No, it's the lead guitarist with Dire Straits, Mark Knopfler. <coughs> no, no, Jeff, wait a minute. Wait. Mark Knopfler is Mark Knopfler. It's his name. He has a silent K. Like Michelle Pfeiffer. She has a silent P. I don't think we want to know about that. Let's hear from my team. Yeah. Simon's team. Yeah. Hang, hang on, where did you come from? Yeah, defectors. Okay, that's Trap and Simon doing their pop quiz from their world tour from 1992. But this isn't the original release of the album, is it, Daryl? No, right. So, in the early 90s, there was... It sounds insane. For the words leaving my lips, it sounds insane. There was a big craze for free gifts stuck to the front of boxes of tea bags. <laughs> there was. It was tea bags which are not bought by children, but they are child-friendly free gifts stuck to the front of tea bag boxes. Things which don't really need extra pushing, because one buys them anyway, and you know you don't pick. All tea bags taste different, you know, different brands. Anyway, the first big attempt at this was there was a comic relief promotion in I think 1993, and there were cassettes stuck to the front of it. This was the year of Stick It Out, and there were some seemed to be rarer than others. There was a very common Black Adder one. 
one, which had an edited version of the episode Bells on it. But the, the one that was most coveted and hung around a lot longer was a Trevor Simon cassette. And it was a sampler of the World Tour album. An album which no one could ever find, incidentally. It, someone's put it up on YouTube. That's the first evidence I've ever seen of it. I remember at the time that PG Tips cassette was traded a lot. It was lent out. Do you want to borrow this? Do you want to borrow this? People making copies of it. I asked for that full one. I genuinely asked for that full one. Never, never got it. It was genuinely quite hard to find. Or maybe it sold out really quickly. Maybe it did well. Or was it Laughing Stock? Yes, it was that weird label, Laughing Stock, where I genuinely think their releases were put out on a geographical basis. Because I know a lot of people had a lot of trouble finding, because this is back in fanzine days when people were writing about this, the Peter Cook attribute with that dreadful cover of him looking like about two years <laughs> after he died next to you close-up. But the actual contents were amazing. Yeah, that was that's it. And there's a Rowan Atkinson one as well. They had the rights to, like, the Rowan Atkinson album. They had the rights to the Secret Policeman's Ball, which they re-released. Because they would put samplers out all the time. The other main thing Laughing Stock did was the Red Dwarf audio books. That was probably their biggest seller at the time. But they did the Trevor Simon, and they were responsible for, obviously, the sampler cassette. This Trevor Simon cassette was interesting for a number of reasons. One, it was kind of extra Trevor Simon material that was not available on TV. So, and it was free and you could get it on T-Bag, sometimes more than one copy, although it'd probably be Bells. A lot of those cassettes went in the bin, you know. It was PG Tips, wasn't it? Can you remember what the other ones were? There was definitely the Black of Bells. The ones I remember was there was Jasper Carrot's 24 Carat Gold, which is now right. I know I've heard that I don't remember anything about. There was also, this is the one that amazes me, there was a tape mixing bits of Good Evening, the Peter Cook and Dudley Moore show, which is not really suitable for kids, with E.L. Wistie sketches taken from the various secret policemen's balls. And there was also, which I still own, Gordon Britash sharing the dream, an edited version <laughs> of the audio book. Wow, I didn't even know about that. Never one. listened some, to it. But... <laughs> so some must have been rarer than others. It's almost surprising now that there wasn't a Red Dwarf one. They must have asked for it and been told no. So the, and it, the main thing about it was there was a lot of bleeping on it. So it was obviously a much more adult, presumably it was quite a studenty audience, more than an adult audience now. You don't, you don't really understand the concept of a student audience. For me, Trevor Simon, the clips of that World Tour tape, it was an adult audience laughing at rude, dirty, blue Trevor and yes. Simon. And there's one point where it's Simon and it's some kind of misunderstanding. And there's just a stream of bleeps. It's about 30 seconds where it's mostly bleeps and audience laughter. It's completely uncomprehensible. But to a child listening to that, it sounds like the most forbidden and exciting thing in the world. Because one, you're saying, what is he saying? <laughs> what is he saying, dirty, dirty Simon Nixon? Well, they really did do that, because I saw a couple of the tours where they did, I wouldn't say they did sort of blue material in the kind of the comedians kind of way, but they took their characters <laughs> further. Maybe they're allowed to do on TV. I distinctly remember because I saw them do these characters on the word as well. They had sort of two scout masters where somebody would say, like, singing Ganguly. Because, you know, somebody is always going to shout that. And he'd say, you have to understand that Guli doesn't mean now what it meant then. And he said, no, but bollocks it. But Trevor and Simon, it's, it's odd. They were ahead of the whole thing for merchandising because they did 
Trapped in Time with Stupid Video, another video, which are brilliant, which have their best going live sketches and some new long material on. And that was before Newman and Badil really broke open the market for sell-through comedy videos. There's at least two books, if I'm correct, as well. There was stuff, but it wasn't that easy to find. It wasn't hugely circulated. It's in the same way that you can buy a Hack of the Dog toy, but you'll struggle to find one. And I'm finding this now, having a toddler, CBeebies merchandise, when it's stuff that's exclusive to the UK. It's made in such small quantities. You'll go, oh, I'll buy that teddy bear of that character from a CBeebies program. And you'll see it on eBay within six months for 80 quid. Everything is done in such small runs, and presumably it was that same kind of cottage industry with that. That doesn't explain why there are so many copies of Chris Barry's motoring wheel nuts in the world. <laughs> but maybe, maybe my argument doesn't hold water. <laughs> well, just be glad you won't be back for a copy of the audiobook of Sharing the Dream. <laughs> PG Tips edition only. See, last time I was the one with the toxic cassette of something that should never have been released. This time it's you. <laughs> <laughs> At least this time I've picked something good. Well, speaking of toxic cassettes, that's where I've got the clip to illustrate your next choice from, because you'll see why in a minute. There's absolutely nothing else I could use to illustrate this. Here's some music you might remember, and it's tangentially related to what we're going to talk about. <laughs> Blockbuster theme as performed by the Silver Screen Orchestra. That's a definitive reading as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but this wasn't the only bit of tie-in Blockbuster merchandise. And I don't mean the quiz book that I've still got as well. There are probably about 12 of them. Daryl, what was this? Before I begin, I'm not lying. This is true. This is real. This, I can't even find any evidence that this exists no. on the internet. It is not me going mad. It's not some personal hell. There was, for a very brief moment in the early 90s, Blockbusters confectionery. There was Bob Holness bubblegum with the Blockbusters slogan, picture of Bob Holness on the front and bubblegum. And a one, you got a quiz card in it as well. There was Bob Holness confectionery. And do you know what? It wasn't around for very long because I don't think people wanted to buy it. <laughs> so it was Blockbusters themed, was it? Was it like gaming cards in it? it was, no, not gaming cards. It was just normal bubblegum card. It was bubblegum with a card, not cards, a card in a little packet. I think it was a, a weirdly low price for something then. Maybe it just it was reduced to clear. But I seem to remember it being something ridiculous like 5p a packet. Big picture of Bob Holness on the front and the logo. Because it was quite merchandise quite a lot. Was it photographic or was it a stylized two-color rendition of his face? Oh, it was a photo. I remember buying a lot of it because it was cheap. Not because I wanted it or because I liked Blockbusters necessarily. Although you watched it, it was on after CITV. But I bought it because it was cheap and, you know, it was revolting. It is the most revolting confectionery I have ever tasted. And I tasted a lot in my childhood. I was brought with an anti-waste ethic so i made sure i had to chew it all i think at one point i put about 10 pieces in just to get rid of it so i hadn't wasted it to myself <laughs> so i was there chewing a ten, a giant revolting tennis ball it tasted as bob holness looked on the packet what did they actually have to do with blockbusters though what was on the card it was a blockbusters grid if i'm correctly remembering and a clues of words you could find in it so kind of 
almost like a word search type of thing. So nothing to do with the actual blockbuster gameplay? No, and you couldn't put them together and make a game. It wasn't like you couldn't really build them or collect them. There wasn't much you could do. If you had 20, you'd just have 20 word searches and some disgusting bubblegum. I've got one overarching question about this, which is, I mean, I've tried and tried to find that information about it. Search everywhere I can. The three things that I keep finding are more covers of Blockbuster by The Suite than I knew existed, including the compilation album Blockbuster's exclamation mark, which I still have somewhere, Blockbuster video stores, or gifts of Captain Marvel <laughs> crashing into a Blockbuster store from Captain Marvel, which obviously I've got no real problem with seeing, but that's making me wonder, was it around that time? Was it when Captain Marvel set? Was it 1995-ish? It was towards right towards the end of Blockbuster's being on. Did Blockbuster last that long to 95? I don't think it did, because 1995 was the year that Bob Holness's Raise the Roof won the Leon Herring's Mediocrity Awards on Radio <laughs> 1. So I think it had finished by then. This must date from the hand jive era blockbusters, I'm sure of it. Oh, definitely. Definitely was. And I reckon we're talking about 93. But that year, I, I think it was the first time I really had access to pocket money. So I was just buying crap whether it was terrible novelty confectionery. I essentially wanted stuff off the telly. But Blockbuster's confectionery was something I bought with very early pocket money because I got a lot of things for probably 50p or maybe a bit more or whatever I could find down the back of my grandma and granddad's sofa, which is usually a source of pocket money because my granddad has holes in his pants. <laughs> I completely forgotten that genuinely a source of income used to be the fact that my granddad had terrible trousers that leaked all the money out of his pocket. So, because I used to have to go to those every week to stay over for one night a week. The reason, the whole entire reason I bought so many stickers and football cards and trading cards and pogs and stuff was entirely paid for by that, the contents of that sofa. I'm not pushed to think of any other game show that had its own tie-in suites. I mean, I don't recall there being, you know, the Teleaddicts chocolate assortment or anything. No, and that doesn't even happen now. I think even Millionaire didn't have confectionery. They should have done a Millionaire shortbread for <laughs> In the shape of Chris Tarrant's face. Yes, I was about to say that. Because <laughs> he's kind of short. He's got a short, bready complexion anyway now. So I think maybe he is short, bread. Maybe that's why they can't use him anymore. He's gone off. Word of wisdom, if you ever remember an old advert and you try and work out and try to remember it, you'll probably find it was done by Aldman, who seemed to, if you look into it, they seem to make basically every advert that was ever on. They made the Lurpak one, didn't they? They did make the Lurpak with um, Peter Skellen. It's Peter Skellen singing Spread a Little Happiness. <laughs> that was Peter Skellen. If that's not in the box set, there will be trouble. They better put these Lurpak the Lurpak years. <laughs> that's the bonus disc. It's being pressed on 180 GSM butter. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you might be tempted to buy that, but I wouldn't be tempted to eat it because the stars of your next choice might have something to say about that. Here they are warning us about something else entirely, though. So she's still not sure what to do, but I think Sweep's got an idea. A screwdriver. <gasps> A screwdriver, says Sooty. No fear. Screwdrivers can be very dangerous things. And Sooty shows Sweep exactly how dangerous... Ooh. How dangerous they can be. Put your paw on that. Ooh, ouch, says Sweep. They're very dangerous. 
screwdrivers are pointed and sharp. Okay, wise words from, well, not wise words from Sutty, wise sounds from Sweep there about why you should never, ever play with screwdrivers. Daryl, what is this from? This is another unearthed horror during my parental development. There was a series of straight-to-video Sutty specials in the 80s. They were really, really good, can I say. They were brilliant. They were one of the best Sutty things there ever was, like Imperial Phase, Matthew Corbett era. They were produced by ITV, so they had the proper sets and everything, but they were straight for the video market, and they were educational. I think there was a learning to the spelling one, reading one, a writing one, a science one. This is the first batch of four, and there was one called Be Safe. Quite early on, about when I was about five or six, I got the set of the first four as a Christmas present, probably out of a catalogue or something, and Be Safe might have been the first one I played. That might have been a mistake, because it's actually quite dark. It's like full-on scarred for life territory be safe because it features at one point i think it features sooty attack a sweep attacking sooty with a screwdriver like a real screwdriver not a toy prop kind of vic and bob it's a real screwdriver but the, the main thing is towards the end there is about a five minute section where matty Cobbett dims the lights and turns all the lights off in the kitchen and talks to all the characters about the dangers of paedophiles and it comes out of nowhere right towards the end and it's brilliant advice and it's brilliant that they did it but i watched all these videos back with my daughter about like this time last year and i was quite surprised at how kind of grim it was i'm glad she saw it and she's seen it again since but that wouldn't happen now there would be no filter especially it was itv and it was commercial so it was entirely what matthew colbert himself who would basically wrote them all himself by that point wanted to put in and wanted to say and no one was there to say don't do this probably a bbc show that wouldn't really happened yeah well i did notice while i was looking for this online i did come across there was a similar rod jane and freddy one from presumably around the same time and that would also have been because this was i think it was 1989 on thames video collection theirs must have been the same label at the same time as well also matthew Corbett was in rod jane and freddy once upon a time it was were. of course rod jane and matt who did an amazing psych track on one of the rainbow albums called Near and Far. Yeah, well, Sooty and Rainbow and by extension the Rod, Jane and Freddy spin-off as they went, they went solo by the end. They were all kind of a Thames family of programmes and they would often <laughs> appear on each other's programmes. cinematic universe. It is basically the, it's the zippy cinematic universe <laughs> because they were quite... Sometimes Rod, Jane and Freddy would be on Sooty. Matthew Cobb might, I think, go on Rainbow because he was on Rainbow as well. They were all kind of in each other's programmes. It is basically the zippy cinematic universe and I was quite into this. This is the last dying days of Thames as well it was yeah. when Thames went they all went at the same time it's like when Thames went to Thames at the end Sutty survived on Granada and the rest of them all got binned didn't they not literally well Sutty and Sweep did have form in this because I can vividly remember you know when the safety men used to come to your school this would have been in the early 80s I can't remember whether it was coppers or you know just general council people or whatever, but you know they'd always do the round yeah, I mean, I'm short from... films like Robbie and things like that and the finish line and they showed us a film where now when i say it's from 1968 i have not looked into this at all i just know that even at that age i saw it and thought that's from 1968 i've seen so much rubbish british film made on rubbish film stock around that time i could date it even at that age where it's sooty and sweep and sue 
with Harry Corbett about how to cross the road safely. And the things I remember about it most were that immediately when it started, there were lots of children saying, it's the wrong man, it's the wrong man. You know, to negate anything they were saying, there was something about sweeping school uniforms, sort of hurling himself across a pelican crossing, (laughs) up in the air. It was one of those bits where he got to see his feet. And that at the end, after they'd done all the good practice about crossing the road, the show they'd learned and so on, it was time for bed, and Sutty and Sweet started hitting each other, and Sue started shouting, Mr. Harry! Mr. Harry! They're fighting on the stairs! And I was just sat there thinking, you sneak! You grass! You know, they've had a long, difficult day, and you're trying to get them into trouble. And Sue is that, that's the message that I took terrible. away from it. Sue has always been a ter- terrible, I'm going to say a terrible human being, but... <laughs> Because <laughs> yeah, she's a panda, that's why she's a terrible human being. She's also a terrible panda. All of this stuck in my head because it, I think it made me overly cautious and overly terrified. But it's a really good thing to happen. There isn't really a modern equivalent. Even, you know, I'm a huge supporter of, of CBeebies and what they do, but they do nothing like this. They never go dark and they never really go stranger danger or don't. this is dangerous. You know, I think there's stuff about electric sockets in there and possibly fire. And at the time, there wasn't as much going around skills. There was well effect. I'm from the Wellifant generation. <laughs> Clearly a compromise. It's weird could... how often he gets mentioned in this. <laughs> it's just... The way to pay this off is to have Wellifant as the guest, and it'll look like you've seeded it all along like some American <laughs> serialised TV series. He's the big bad. <laughs> Okay, well, your next choice, I'm not that familiar with either. And I wonder if this was full of warnings, too. Here's an advert for it anyway, but don't rush out and buy it because I'm sure it's not in the shops right now. week by week into something that children will actually enjoy referring to and using for schoolwork. Okay, well that magazine is called Find Out More, and I know absolutely nothing about it, and they've been able to find out next to nothing about it, so I want to find out more as well. Daryl, free binder with part one, what's in it? Of course there was a free binder with part one. Find Out More was probably the granddaddy of all the early 90s kids' part works. Part works became massive for a brief time. There was a, a big craze with one called Dinosaurs, which again, the Jurassic Park aftermath, where you, every issue had a, a 3D picture you could view with 3D glasses and one piece of a dinosaur skeleton, and then it became one piece of a dinosaur body, like a, an outer skin, and you put it together to make a big dinosaur model. And I had that. And there was another one. Now, this was in the really early days of home computers they were still quite exotic you had things like computers for schools vouchers that's how much of a novelty they were that schools had to basically organize hustles of vouchers from supermarkets to get a computer for a classroom and the idea of cd-roms being incredibly exotic things like encarta the idea of interactive encyclopedias so they decided to make a kids encyclopedia style part work that was aesthetically designed to evoke a CD-ROM, and it was called Find Out More. It had a very, very, very heavy TV advertising campaign. And there was a girl with a question mark for a head or something like that. <laughs> did she kill was... John F. Kennedy? She did, <laughs> yes. And there was... Um... <laughs> and there was... And, uh, the, I mean, to the point that people were, like, reenacting the advert in the playgrounds and making fun, quoting the advert in the playgrounds. So, so it's been a really heavy period where episode one was, episode one, issue one, 
was available and I bought it I think it was like a pound or whatever you, it became more as, as everything did and as far as I'm aware everyone bought the first one most people didn't buy the second one I bought it for three bastard years not even because I wanted it what happened was I went oh I'll have that and I quite liked the process of getting each issue it was really really fiddly it wasn't bound with staples it was bound with kind of a, a, a gluey outside like a cheap notepad which you had to pick off really kind of messily and you had to peel all the pages apart taking off all the glue as you did so and then file them by category in in the binders it was a huge amount of admin every week by about month two i'd had enough of it and i wasn't even reading it because all the time i might have spent reading it i was just assembling it like a useless Meccano set of just junk paper. And you might rip it and you might rip a hole in one. And I was having to have hole punch reinforcers and this and that. And it really wasn't worth it. But I ended up getting to five binders worth after three years. Because what would happen is it wasn't a magazine that after a while you could get on the shelves. Most of these part works, you get them ordered in week on, you know, week on week, month on month. And it was weekly. So that's how much admin there was. Every week I had to do two hours of filing. And then like I'd miss it one week and then I'd have more work to do. It was like ho- it was like a horrible unpaid job. And I would never use this for reference. My parents placed an order at the newsagents inside Wigan bus station. Still there. I think it's still there. What, the order? <laughs> Probably. And every time I asked them to cancel it, they would go and say, oh, he said he's ordered it in for next week. Ah. I'll ask him next week. So my, it was impossible to get out of this horrible contract. I think it was something like £2.10, which is a lot of money a month, if you think about it. Just the level of admin involved sounds horrendous, because it's reminding me of It's a little-known fact about me that I briefly worked in the legal profession a long, long time ago. Seems like another world. But people might not be familiar with, there is a Butterworth's Law, which is like kind of bound volumes of intricacies of various laws and various subjects. Every month, they would change pages in it. It was like a ring binder affair. And some would be changed because, like, a, an art was changed with the because of the change in the law. And you would have to go through and change all these pages all the time. That was one of the reasons I, I left, <laughs> to be honest so with you. I'm completely stuck on the title Butterworth's Law. If that's not the title of a junked comedy playhouse from 1963 <laughs> that Kaleidoscope <laughs> have found featuring Peter Butterworth, I want my money back. Well, I want to see Butterfield's laws. <laughs> By the second month, I never read it. And I think I ended up, I di- didn't even want it in my room. I think I was filing it in my parents' wardrobe. <laughs> I was hiding unfiled issues around the house. Like that Mr. Bean where he's trying to get rid of the meal. <laughs> That's how I was trying to get rid of Find Out More. I couldn't emphasise enough how I didn't want this anymore. I've moved on by then. I had Disney and me. I had Garfield magazine, which was its own brand of ridiculousness. Garfield magazine, do you, do you remember that existing on UK shelves? Garfield magazine was mostly old Garfield strips, either reprinted or colourised, printed very, very big, and that was what the whole magazine was. So loads and loads of blank space. And I got that for about two years. Maybe because I found it more entertaining. I didn't have to file it. It was my best option at getting out and find out more. <laughs> Disney and me was good because you quite often got transfers you could ruin the furniture with. Well, it's worth pointing out that, you know, there is this image that part works were just for kids, but there was a real thing around that time of they tried to push them to adults, but in quite often unsuitably chirpy ways. I mean, the ones that really stick out for me, there was one called Face to Face, which is basically what the video of The Lover's Guide would be a couple of years later. <laughs> 
it was, you know, a, a guide for long-term couples retaining the pleasure in their relationship, you know, that sort of thing. And it was like, it was always a big thing in the playground that someone had somehow got hold of a copy of one of the installments. I feel it'd be like, but it had an advert where it would be on, not quite during kids' TV, but, you know, in the bit after, you know, in like the blockbusters bit or whatever, with, you know, a couple kind of looking at each other with naughty expressions. And they had this jingle that went, face to face. And that, that was not how that should be pushed. And the other one was... This was in the mid-90s. There was a true crime one. It's called something like Killer Casebook or something. I can't remember. But it had voices of a family going, but how did they find the body? Like, give us a bloody theme park or something. I, I actually found that quite offensive, really. Now, I remember seeing that on the shelves. There, there were like two, as you say, they did move part works over toilets. Now they don't really get them for kids anymore. They're all adult things. But at the time, you saw the true crime one, and the other one, which stuck around like nuclear fallout, was the Star Trek fact file, which I don't know any human being who ever bought it, except once I went into a secondhand bookshop and I saw an entire collection of it kind of just tragically on one shelf, as if they'd just gone in and gone, get rid of this. But that, again, was an attempt to go weirdly. There was a point where they thought Partworks would be a good way of bringing the internet on CD-ROMs and computers to people who didn't want computers. It was a kind of workaround. You don't need a computer. You've got the Star Trek fact file and find out more. The sad thing is, I bet they go for a fortune on eBay now. I bet they don't. I can't imagine that issue 166 of Star Trek fact file, slightly shop-soiled, includes an exclusive picture of Quark. <laughs> Well, I'm willing to bet that there was never a part work based on either of the parties involved in your last choice. You won't believe how many times it's taken me to say that. I can't believe this happened, but here it is. What group's he from, anyway? Ah, uh, the Goonies or something like that. What's his name? Spiky? Spooky? Something stupid, I don't know. You fools! Pipe Milligan! <laughs> I think you better call that Jason Orange bloke. Okay, Daryl, that's Spike Milligan and that's Steps. What? Summer TV schedules for, for kids used to be generally quite rubbish because they would often palm you off with stuff they couldn't get away with because they were school holidays and you were a captive audience. And they would quite often put pop specials, especially around that time. There were things like, there were quite a lot of S Club. It was S Club 7 taking over the children's TV kind of era. And there was a Steps special on BBC One on like a, in the weekend or during the summer holidays. Steps into summer. It was about an hour and I would watch anything that was variety or entertainment or light entertainment. I was kind of just a, an addict. But anything that was someone entertaining people in front of an audience, even if it was tell, even rubbish sitcoms, anything. And I never really lost that for a long time. So I did watch this. But the main reason I watched it is because in the TV listings, it listed who was involved in it. And it just said featuring this, this, this... Um, and Spike Milligan. I was like, Spike Milligan, he's going to get him on stage. He's going to do some of his poems on stage. What's going to happen? Why is he in steps? Well, that's interesting. Because don't forget, in the early noughties, Spike Milligan was in serious health decline. Because he had that stroke in the mid-90s, which kind of made... He could barely speak after that stroke. And he, he ploughed on, but he was never really the same. That's the Spike Milligan they got. Did they uh, have him perform and do some of his poems? No, he's a stooge in a filler sketch where I think they can't pronounce his name. He's going, oh, Spone Milligan, is it? Spine Milligan? 
is it Spoke? Some stupid name like that. And he goes, it's Spike Milligan. And he's on for about five seconds, looking like, as you mentioned before, after about uh, the Peter Cook cassette, <laughs> like he's two years after his own death. And it's almost subliminal. There's flash frames that last longer than that. And I, I was like, why, why have they got him? It looked almost cruel. You can see that. Steps into Summer, someone has put that on YouTube. I don't know why. It's terrible. It's not the only terrible thing about it as well. It's also got, they're trying to launch Archie Kelly from Phoenix Nights as a, as a kind of Tony Farino, sub-Tony Farino act. He spends about 10 minutes in the middle of that as well. And that's his only TV exposure that put paid to that character. Well, ironically, it's much more like something out of Q than anyone trying to copy Q will come up with. <laughs> to the point of being cruel and largely unfunny as well. I'm going to get in trouble for saying that. Well, you're not going to get this disagreement. We're in mutual, <laughs> mutual agreement that Q is shit. <laughs> let's, let's just have an amnesty now. Come on. We, we've, been to- we've read so many comedy books telling me how influential and classic and it should have been repeated. No, it's rubbish. <laughs> well, you haven't seen that in colour, have you? <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> oh, I have. <laughs> I've done basis on. I, you know, when you just watch, you go, it's got it. You, you feel like you have to watch something as a personal growth and learning experience, as education. No, Q is rubbish, and there's less. If you watch both Best of Q videos from the 90s, you've seen about twice as much Q as you actually need to. The one that's made out of There's a Lot of It About is not too bad because it's not written by him. I do like Spike Milligan. I just don't like Q. Well, back to Steps. I mean, it's interesting to bring up S Club 7 because there were a few things around that time where people had obviously seen how successful S Club 7 were and thought, let's do a programme based on our band. There was this, there was Hearsay It's Saturday. It was All Stars or Star Street, as you would think it was called, a TV show tried to launch a band out of it didn't work yeah there was a girl group that had one as well but they all did there was a Cleopatra coming at you there was but it was all mainly it was all hinged around performing songs with a bit of banter between them and in this you know you've got them doing they do all night long and I know him so well and there's also a weird sketch where the girls appear to shag Les Dennis in the cupboard which is we've all done it What they missed was, the reason S17 was successful was, as far as I'm concerned, they were picked because not only could they sing, they were good actors. They weren't afraid of doing daft, surreal things. I mean, one of them was so good an actress, she made us think she wasn't a racist until she was on Celebrity Big Brother. But, you know, that, those S Club 7 shows, they were quite funny. They were all kinds of very odd jokes, particularly in Miami 7 and Back to the 50s, yeah. which is the TV movie they did, where they actually go back to the 50s and Rachel wants to be a hot rod driver, which I remember laughing my head off at, but they obviously just thought, well, all you need is pop group and telly, and it works. And it doesn't. That's how you end up with humiliating Spike Milligan in his later years. Well, S Club 7 stuff was really well, they properly tried to go full on monkeys with it. They got, because Simon follows a manager and obviously Kim follows his brother who's like Lenny Henry's main writer and wrote a lot of other things. So they really tried to make it good. And it was actually quite, you were correct, they weren't a terrible act either. They were, as far as what was available at the time, they were probably, because I think the Spice Girls had buggered off even by then. So there wasn't much there was a lot of kind of humorlessness, especially the pop had gone quite humorless and it was, it, it, they kind of stood out. But as you say, Steps into Summer is, it's terrible. The whole thing is terrible. But that moment, I genuinely would say that that moment, I would have been about 16 when that was on. And as I said, I used to watch everything quite open, open mouthed and innocent. That probably turned a key. I went slightly more cynical. I think that single Spike Milligan cameo on Steps into Summer ended my childhood. That was, <laughs> that was the death of innocence, that. That was the, the point where I realised that, 
you know, we're not in Kansas anymore, or they've just humiliated an old man who I like the poetry books off on. Well, if anyone wants to compare the two, I've just looked up randomly that I did tweet when I rewatched all of the S Club 7 TV shows a couple of years ago, and I summarised the storylines. Here's one random one. An episode of Miami 7, Joe and John get into trouble after snorting some extra hot chilli powder, Rachel hotwires a car to go for a joyride, and Hannah decides she wants to live in a bin. <laughs> Which has just made me think of Spike Milligan's jump into a dustbin and dance. <laughs> Isn't the one series though that's got Linda Blur? And there's at least one yes. episode which is an Exorcist parody. Yes. Which goes yes. over the heads of everyone that might ever have watched that. But there is genuinely an Exorcist parody starring S Club 7. Is Mark Kermode going to do a documentary about that episode of LA7? <laughs> <laughs> we can't but hope. Daryl, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thinking about me, like Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles given a new twist, looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News Channel with a big caption saying Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org.